0: Welcome to another episode of the Academy Securities Geopolitical and Macro Strategy Podcast. My name is Andrew Robinson and I'm your host, and I'm joined by Rachel Washburn, Peter Chur, Major General James Spider-Marks, and Lieutenant General David Deptula. Over the weekend, tensions rose between Russia and the Ukraine after Russia captured three of Ukraine's naval vessels and crew. What impact might this have on the markets? How will this play out? What subsequent steps might the United States take to maintain stability in the region? We're very fortunate to have our geopolitical experts available to share their opinions on this topic. At this time, I'll hand it over to Rachel Washburn and the rest of our panel.
1: General Marks, General Jeptula, thanks for joining us today. As far as the topic of Ukraine, it's been something that we've discussed with our clients and here on the podcast in the past. Uh, We've always felt that it's a little bit of an overlooked issue that has significant strategic implications not only for the U.S. security in Europe and abroad, but also it's a, a huge, it's a significant issue for Russia and their grand strategy, especially in the region. Can you discuss what you see as the biggest issues with Ukraine and what the indicators are for growing instability with Ukraine and it's vis-a-vis Russia?
2: Well, thanks, Rachel. Yeah, and I um... On the heels of Thanksgiving, I hope everybody's doing well and had, had a wonderful time with family. Um, yeah, we come back from a Thanksgiving holiday and we see um, activity in Ukraine that's incredibly troubling. And I think I would start by saying Russia, I think, has or really has a grasp on grand strategy, or at least they seem to be working along a path of grand strategy. And I would argue that the United States has really taken a second place seat um, in the notion of how we establish grand strategy and how we implement that strategy going forward, which is really a shame. Uh, I would say, honestly, the United States previously really owned the market in terms of grand strategy. And over the course of the last couple of decades, sadly, um, our grasp on that has loosened and we've atrophied in terms of our ability to establish a vision, build toward that vision, and then um, measure it and make adjustments along the path. So what we saw in Ukraine just took place in the last 24 hours, I would say um, really falls directly in line with what I think our board of advisors has been discussing in terms of a Russian grand strategy to redraw its old borders. Uh, We know that Putin certainly would love to see the Soviet Union return. That simply is not going to happen, but its influence, Russia's influence in a global stage can certainly increase, and we are very mindful of their abilities to increase in that level of competition. So I would say that's point number one in terms of what we've seen in the last 24 hours. Point number two is the timing could not be better for Russia. The Ukrainian leadership is uh, essentially a kleptocracy. It's a total mess. The current president is a gentleman by the name of Poroshenko. And if a vote were to be held today, he would have zero support in the Donbass, which is that eastern portion of Ukraine that abuts against Crimea. So frankly, Poroshenko um, has little influence in terms of activities that are taking place in that part of Ukraine. What we saw in the Crimea in 2014, the world simply blinked and allowed it to occur. I would suggest that the Donbass, that eastern portion of Ukraine, is the next part of the Ukraine that will be absorbed back into Russia, and the world will simply blink but do nothing. But sadly, Poroshenko would not feel inclined to do anything either. That's a part of Ukraine in which he has very little interest, which really tells you about the state of the leadership in Ukraine and that it's really about the individual leader. They lack a national identity, and that's a major concern. Point number three is, look, the challenge in that part of the world is all about Europe's access to Russian oil and gas. All of that passes through Ukraine. And if Ukraine has slowly been absorbed back into Russia over the course of the next few years, which is a legitimate concern that we should be watching and should be perfecting actions against to try to prevent we, there will be no moderating influence in terms of Russia's ability to pump the volumes of oil and gas through those pipelines that are in Ukraine if Ukraine is a part of Russia. Russia can run the table in terms of pricing, in terms of volume, in terms of how to turn the spigot on or turn the spigot off. And Europe would be completely dependent upon Russia's ability and its total access and total capability To turn that on and off. That's a major concern. So there really is a very strong argument for keeping Ukraine independent and unified. So if nothing else, it can remain a moderating influence to Russia and its ability to move oil through that region into Europe. And then the fourth thing is that this is all about the next step. And the next step is certainly going to be the Baltics. There's legitimate concern that there are members of NATO right now that would not respond to a challenge to another member of NATO, specifically Estonia, Latvia, or Lithuania, if it were challenged by Russia. And that's a major concern. And frankly, Russia knows that. So when you look at what just took place in Ukraine, in my mind, those are the four major things that really define what the United States and the global community needs to do together to confront this.
1: General Deptula, do you share General Marx's concern over the Baltics and NATO's response if Russia's aggression continues beyond Ukraine?
3: Well, I think the points that he raises are good ones. Let me take a little bit of a different tact and put this in the context of what the United States needs to be thinking about. Uh, Look, clearly, this is a shared responsibility to put the Russians' actions back in the box, so to speak, uh, but it's primarily a European responsibility. It does demonstrate, however, the importance of U.S. global responsibilities. Now, uh, you know, the audience may not be aware, but there's a recent report that was just released called the Commission on the National Security Strategy of the United States, it's an extraordinary report uh, in that it highlights sort of the crisis that uh, faces uh, the United States today when it comes to defense and these kinds of issues. Here's what the first line says: "Quote the security and well-being of the United States are at greater risk than at any time in decades." It goes on to talk about how there is a need for extraordinary urgency in addressing this crisis of national defense. And that in 2018, this commission believes that America has reached the point of a full-blown national security crisis. It goes on to talk about some various uh, details that I I won't burden the discussion with in terms of of stable budgets and increases on the order of three to 5% in defense, but it does talk about specifically how the Department of Defense needs a rigorous force development plan that connects its investment strategy with its key priorities of winning in conflict and competing effectively with China and Russia. Now, as General Marks just mentioned, this is what the Russians have done is clearly part of their strategy. The United States needs to take action to assure that the Russians understand that they can't do these kinds of actions and go unpunished because otherwise they'll take action in another part of Europe. And that then leads to the scenario that John Marks pointed out in terms of his concerns with the Baltics. And if in fact there are some NATO nations that would not respond, that clearly would underline the entire alliance. And so I wouldn't be surprised if uh, that wasn't part of Putin's grand strategy, if you will. Now, in that regard, let me offer you what the Commission on the National Defense Strategy had to say about this particular scenario, quote, If the United States had to fight Russia in a Baltic contingency or China in a war over Taiwan, Americans could face a decisive military defeat. The United States military would face daunting challenges in establishing air superiority or sea control and retaking territory lost early in any such conflict. Put bluntly, the U.S. military could lose the next state versus state war that it fights, So I think it's important to put in context, not just this particular instance, but the state of affairs that the United States military finds itself after 17 years of focusing on counterinsurgency warfare at the low end scale of conflict, while basically neglecting its capabilities to deter at the higher end and against threats like Russia, which get to the whole subject of the importance of having an extraordinarily strong defense where the Russians would make no such move. that this is the whole notion of uh, deterrence. So those are a couple of pieces to consider. Frankly, as John uh, Marx mentioned, it's all kind of boils down to what's Russia's next move. It is a complex situation because, With the Ukraine now considering martial law, it is the biggest lingering question, and the short answer is that nobody knows. But the United States has to come up with a very strong response, and Ambassador Nikki Haley had a good initial response at the uh, United Nations earlier today. We'll see how far that goes.
2: What General Deptula just said um, makes perfect sense, and I think you need to even wrap it in a in kind of a broader perspective, again, in that when you look at what the growth of NATO since the fall of the wall in 1989, um, NATO went from 16 members to 29 members today. And if you'll think back to the 90s, um, President Clinton indicated at that time to, um, to President Putin look, NATO has no designs on Russia. Russia needs to get its act together. You've gone through a period of dramatic change. You are no longer the Soviet Union. You have immense amount of work to do internally and to establish yourself globally and internationally in a way that you've not been, in, in a way that you've not conducted for over you know close to 60 years at that point. And so what happened is that Immediately on the heels of that, but once we got into the late 90s, NATO then exploded from 16 members to 29 members with the addition of 13 members, the very last one being Montenegro, which joined here just a couple of years ago. So here's Putin, who is still the president in Russia, and he's taking the president of the United States at his word and he says, look, we have no designs on Russia. We're not going to expand NATO. NATO expands. And Putin is saying, look, you, you bastards are back at it again. You, you want to put me in a box. You want to you completely, strategically confine me with, with, uh, from uh, outside in. You want to limit my maneuverability, my real opportunity to try to engage internationally. So what you see with Putin simultaneously in reaction to that, is an effort on his part, which is what we would label recidivist Russian behavior. Crimea falls in 2014. Other um, crises have occurred on his near abroad that he's handled very brutally, yet in his best interest. We see this new incident that just occurred in Ukraine as another tumbler that's going to fall. And it's inevitable to see Ukraine, unless the world responds in a coherent, very measured way, that Ukraine is gonna fall back right fall right back into Moscow's hands, and it would not be surprising to see the next steps of um, the Baltics being challenged similarly. But when you look at Ukraine, just this past year, um, you know, the markets responded to what was happening or what is happening in the Donbass. We've seemed to normalize the uh, annexation of Crimea in 2014, and the markets have kind of looked at Ukraine and have not uh, established or at least acted with any, de- uh, viewing it with any degree of risk. And I would defer to Peter in terms of how he tries to make sense of this.
4: Yeah, I think this is a you know big question for markets. Ukraine issued $2 billion of debt just at the end of October. So one of those bonds is a $1.25 billion issue maturing in 2028. It was trading nine three quarters percent at par. It had been drifting down. It's dropped over three points today. So I think a lot of investors are sitting here saying, at 93, were they complacent at the time? Is this another situation like we saw actually in Greece for different reasons where you were able to issue a new bond and then very shortly after it sold off? Or is the market overreacting to what's going on? And from my sense, and you guys to maybe both just touch on this briefly what would you say for the next three months? Is Ukraine, is it going to defuse or is it going to become you know more problematic?
3: Yeah, and Peter, what I would tell you is that's gonna wholly be dependent upon um, what the leadership of Europe uh, has to say, and more importantly, believe it or not, um, the position of the president of the United States.
4: And right now, it seems like Europe's pretty tied up between Brexit and other things, so I'm not sure what we'll hear and the president has a lot going on, we have not really heard much from him on this subject, have we?
3: No, not yet, although we did hear from uh, the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley, who came out with a very strong statement that said the people of the United States of America are on this side of the Ukraine.
2: This is an opportunity for the United States to really reestablish itself in a strong leadership position, specifically in Europe. Look, it's our largest trading partner. We have long historical ties that are obvious to everyone. And a united Europe that um, views its threats in a very similar way is far more, um, is far stronger, far more unified, and um, will look to the West for its market guidance, its engagement, its inspirational leadership, its moral leadership, its global perspectives. Yet if this is divided and there is lack of action or at least a unified action from Europe and the United States, um, you're going to have a divided Europe and and you could begin to see the larger challenge of each nation within the EU striking its own deal to its own advantage. You know, the the... The growth of nationalism, if you will, the downside of the growth of nationalism, where you lose the unifying factors that have held Europe together, the common view of its advantages, its opportunities, and its threats. When that starts to dissipate, that's when we start to see some major problems where um, global leadership becomes very, very rare because everybody is scrambling to solve the problem independently of others and strike the best deal for themselves. So this is an opportunity for the United States to step up, obviously with European partners, and say, look, we cannot allow this to stand. And so we have to find ways not only to confront Europe. What General Deptula said in terms of the national strategy and the concerns that the U.S. could, in fact, lose a kinetic engagement in in Europe is absolutely a. You know, startling to me that the United States could, in fact, acknowledge that and, in fact, is in a position to say, you know, it's legitimate. It could actually occur. We have got to address this. And so, in order to do that, not only do we have to be able to compete with Russia, we have to find ways to cooperate. And there are ways that the United States could take the wind out of the sails in this particular incident if they acted very strongly quickly and in a unified way and made this a priority. I do think it's a priority for the president to step up on a personal level to take you know, take advantage of what um, what happened in the US, UN today with Nikki Haley, but to have a very strong, very unequivocal voice from him saying, look, this isn't going to stand, but here are our options going forward. Yeah, and in that regard, let me jump in here. Uh, We've got a little bit of
3: indication of, uh, again, sort of the Russian strategy. Let's, you know, listening to and and reading about the the Russians' response, um, the Russians' flagship news program, uh, you know, recently claimed that this incident, uh, these are their words, was a Ukrainian provocation ordered from Washington in a bid to sabotage an upcoming meeting between President Trump and Putin at this week's Group of 20 G20 summit in Argentina. The Russian Foreign Ministry, in their statement, uh, didn't offer any specifics, but they warned the Kiev regime and its Western patrons of, quote, serious consequences of the skirmish at sea. And they went on to say, clearly, this is a well-thought-out provocation that took place in a predetermined place and form Aimed at creating another hotbed of tension in the region and a pretext for stepping up sanctions against Russia. I mean, they're actually daring us to throw additional sanctions on them. So, frankly, you know, if I, would, if I was advising the president, is hey, Mr. President, you need to bury beer very strong and direct with Putin, demand the release of the ships and crew members, or Russia faces the consequences which are, are, are significant and serious sanctions, um, you know, call their bluff. Uh, so, you know, they go on to state that, you know, Russia is issuing a warning to Ukraine that Kiev's policy pursued in coordination with the United States and the EU, European Union that seeks to provoke a conflict with Russia in the waters of the Sea of Azov and the Black Sea is fraught with serious consequences. I'd turn that right around and go, hey, Putin, here's the deal, man. We're, we're not buying any of your BS anymore. And so here's what we're going to do. You either give the ship back, give, our, give the Ukrainian people their ships back, or you, we're going to tighten the sanctions such that Uh, you're not going to like it. Uh, And uh, I think it needs to be that simple and that straightforward. Uh, It would be a disaster if the president buddies up uh, to Putin in uh, Argentina, um, like he did in his last meeting with uh, Putin uh, in Europe.
2: You know, here's here's my concern um, with that as a strategy by itself you have to have a desired outcome that is attainable, can be measured and is attainable in a certain amount of time frame. Um, economic sanctions never achieve the outcome that you want them to. They're never as strong as they should be. They never have the result that they should unless they are totally suffocating, which means when you impose sanctions, there's a heck of a lot of pain at home that you have to endure in order to make the intended target respond in a way that you want them to respond. So economic sanctions, I agree, but I don't think we're ever going to reach a level where any, especially Russia, but any nation or any entity would be in a position to um, feel like there is sufficient pressure to modify their behavior. So that's number one. And number two is the worst thing that can happen right now is for Ukraine— and the United States to overreact on this and double down in terms of um, Putin's activities and say, look, totally unacceptable. I totally agree, Dave, that you, you can't allow this type of criminal behavior to take place. But at the same time, the larger issue is not the ships. The larger issue is we, the NATO nations, are not interested in having Ukraine join NATO. This is not another piece of the of geography that we want to border Russia and make it more difficult for you. We want Ukraine to remain independent, not a member of NATO and totally unified, which means we got to cut out this this civil conflict that's taking place in the Donbass. You Russia have a have a role in this. The you know, insurgents in Donbass and the Ukrainian forces in Donbass need to be able to reach an accommodation to cut this out immediately. So that, so that you can pull back. We can try to settle what's happening in the Donbass because we know what you're up to. You're up to trying to absorb and dissolve Ukraine back into Russia. That we're not going to let happen. But we want to make sure you understand we don't want Ukraine to be a part of NATO. It shouldn't be. It should be independent and unified and not a member of NATO.
3: Yeah, well, I, I won't disagree with that. Uh, but the, Spider, this is a complex situation. I mean, bringing Donbass into this makes it even more difficult. So I'm not suggesting that we wait to see what the the outcome of sanctions are. We basically provide them an ultimatum in the context of demanding the release of these three ships and crew members, uh, or they'll face the consequences of not just additional sanctions, uh, but the... Uh, arming of the Ukrainians to be able to uh, uh, defend themselves in a manner uh, much greater than what we've given them assistance to in the past, which has nothing to do with them joining NATO. Of course, we don't want them to join NATO. That would just exacerbate the situation and make it much, much more complex. But clearly, you know, the, the president has talked in the past, and rightfully so, about how the Obama administration's failure to draw lines and hold to them simply encouraged the Russians to push further. And now we've seen the consequences of that kind of action where they've reintroduced themselves into the Middle East where they haven't been for 40 years due to US action. Because of Obama's inaction, um, Trump can't afford uh, to replicate that kind of an approach.
4: I guess, you know, let's take maybe just one step back. Over the next week, do we expect this to escalate or deescalate? And where do you think we'll be two months from now relative today, de-escalated or escalated?
3: It kind of depends on, again, what we were just talking about, what Russia's next move is and how the president personally responds to this. Um, the, the, the UN ambassador's response has been very strong. Um, that's fine, uh, but everybody's waiting to hear um, what Mr. Trump has to say and whether he'll actually stand up to Putin uh, in what is, is quite clearly a violation of uh, uh, international law or if he, he, he backs down.
2: I could see that um, in the near term, tactically, it will de-escalate as quickly as it escalated. I'm putting a timeline of, of days on that. But I could see long-term escalation. There will be more opportunities where Putin will push and prod and see where we will, we, the, the I would say, the law-abiding members of the international community, specifically the EU, the United States, NATO, et cetera, to see how we're going to respond um, long-term.
4: And that kind of fits my assessment as well, that Trump does tend to in-person want to con- you know, be conciliatory. So at the G20, I think we may see a de-escalation, as you said. They kind of talk nice. But it sounds like everything we've heard, that there is a high degree of likelihood that this re-escalates once they're separated, once Russia feels they can push further again, which, again, I think from a market standpoint, people have to be very careful about.
3: Well, that's, again, why the president's key. I mean, I mean, if, if he kind of goes up there and wraps his arm around Putin and say, you know, hey, buddy, we can work this out. Um, I think that's just asking for a greater escalation in the future because Putin is playing uh, Trump just like he played Obama. Uh, and I think this particular issue uh, has gotten to the point that we'll see just how far Putin can push Trump. Uh, And that will determine how this thing will unravel or uh, put itself back in the box over the next couple of weeks.
2: So let me ask you this, Dave. What's your level of confidence that on Friday morning or Friday evening, um, we will see the United States president confronting the president of Russia in a way that makes it crystal clear that his actions that Russia's actions in Ukraine um, over the past 24 hours uh, were unacceptable. Do you think the president will do that?
3: Uh, I'd give it a a 40-60 chance. It depends on uh, how much time John Bolton uh, has to speak in Trump's ear. Um, His predilections based on his previous actions would indicate that he's not likely to do that, but there's a chance we could be surprised and he'll stand up to him.
2: Yeah, my concern is that it won't happen, but by its own weight, um, this will become de-escalated, to Peter's point. I'd love to see how the market responds, or if the market just bakes into this as, you know, business as usual. um, I'm not certain. I'm not certain, but it concerns me. The longer term, larger, kind of what I would call the broader horizon concern that I have is this does have everything to do with Russian recidivist behavior and how that affects Donbass, how that affects the rest of Ukraine and how it ultimately affects bulk, uh, the Baltics.
3: Yeah. Meanwhile, uh, back to my points about what are we doing, what are we signaling with defense? Uh, you know, the, the commission rec- recommends an increase to the defense-based budget an, at an average rate of 3 to 5% over the next uh, five years. Meanwhile, the administration just directed to cut the defense budget by 5%. So here we go. We're back to, hey, are we really going to resource the strategy that we have, the strategy that says that we need to be prepared to stand up and be strong enough such that we can achieve a deterrent effect to these kinds of actions? Or um, are we you know, going to just go along with some arbitrary budget level Um, set by a bunch of folks uh, who represent us in Congress who are more concerned with, you know, um, what their next door neighbor tells them in their district than what's going on in the
2: rest of the world. And those legitimate concerns drive markets and drive decisions in ways that um, often are incredibly difficult to uh, predict or at least read, even while they're occurring.
3: Well, and here's a concern. The bigger concern is, you know, we're talking about this subject. Uh, we're located a, in in a city that is uh, completely different than the rest of America inside the Beltway. Um, I seriously doubt that there are many people uh, in mid-America that are talking about what's going on uh, in the Sea of Asboth this morning. Uh, so I, I think this is just a, we're headed down a path uh, that quite frankly is going to surprise the American people when we have to use force somewhere and we fail. Uh, And that is one of the concerns and the underlying message of this uh, commission on the national defense strategy that uh, they came out with. This is a sage group of people. Um, Eric Eidelman, Gary Ruffhead, former CNO, Uh, Jack Keane, Andy Krepinevich, uh, Kathleen Hicks, um, Roger Zockeim, Ann Peterson. Uh, So these are a a group of folks who uh, uh, don't tend to be uh, alarmist, but holy cow, I certainly recommend uh, you all read their report, uh, because it's a wake-up call on uh, the priorities that our nation needs to make uh, between guns and butter.
2: And the, th- and the issue really becomes, what is the horizon that we have in order to make those adjustments? Um, if we can guarantee ourselves a decade of some degree of, um, not peace, but at least the ability to address these shortfalls and to build toward them, which, frankly, we were able to achieve on the heels of Vietnam um, and were able to present ourselves in a way that, we had incredible amount of risk that we could lose it all. And we acknowledge that we could lose it all. But we're able to build up our forces. What what we have right now is a bit of a different dynamic in that you do have, um, I would call global powers, if not superpowers, that are bouncing against each other and kind of chest bumping each other in an unfriendly way. And I don't know how much time we have to Acknowledge that we do have those shortfalls, address the shortfalls, and simultaneously, how do you de-escalate what those challenges are? In other words, what I keep talking about is we have to be able to maintain a very strong national security posture. But how do we find ways, small ways that are discernible and measurable, where we can cooperate in a meaningful way to kind of turn the temperature down a little bit? And right now in the Ukraine, it's, I, I don't see it, but there are ways attendant to that that need to be on the front burner that we are discussing and moving in the direction to try to address. Well,
3: back, back to Peter's point on, um, you know, don't know how markets are going to react. Well, so far, they're reacting pretty good with the Dow up 330 points and NASDAQ up 130. So um, I, I hope that uh, it continues in that direction. I think my point on the you know, quoting where the market stands today is a reflection of what I just talked about here uh, a minute ago in the context of what's of concern of those who are watching geopolitical rivalries uh, in the rest of America. And uh, there, there aren't many uh, citizens in the United States of America are paying that much attention to what's going on in the geopolitical stage. Uh, and that's got to change. It's an indicator of the fact that I don't think we are gonna see um, slow but sure increases in the defense budget, uh, particularly with a change in the House, with the Democrats coming back on board. And that's unfortunate because we're headed to a situation where it's gonna take another catastrophic action to get the American people uh,
2: to react. Sadly, that's our history as we know. We've gotta be pushed to the point, we can take a blow but we've got to be pushed to the point where it's incredibly painful. Um, That's our history, and it really concerns me, to your very, very point, Dave. And
3: the the problem is we're not going to have time to respond like we did uh, in World War II. Um, We're not going to have three to four to five years to rebuild industrial base um, simply because uh, actions occur, you know, at the speed of – uh, speed of light, quite frankly, the speed of the network, and uh, the, the Russians have mastered this and so have the Chinese. So with that bit of happy news, um, I got to sign off, but thanks for the opportunity to chat.
0: Well, General Deptula, there's always more to discuss next time. Thank you so much to everyone on our panel for contributing to this conversation. Major General spider Marks, Lieutenant General David Deptula, Peter Chur, Rachel Washburn, thank you all so much. And thank you specifically to our listeners for taking the time. We love sharing our geopolitical content with our friends and clients. If you have any interest in engaging our experts directly, please email us at info at academysecurities.com. Academy Securities is a service-disabled, veteran-owned investment bank with a social mission to hire, train, and mentor military veterans to develop careers in finance. I'm your host, Andrew Robinson, and I really appreciate you taking the time today and look forward to speaking to you again soon.